Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Isaac. If you are just here for the first or second time, I do a big chunk of the teaching here. Uh, we're kind of at a, mid, a little bit past the midway point of a long series going through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I honestly have, I, I'm not, this is an exaggeration, I have, I had, past tense, uh, about really like 10 to 12 hours of content. So it was incredibly difficult to just reduce that down. And so um, we're just going to jump right into it. No introduction, no opening story, no how's everyone doing, just straight into it. Uh, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount dealing specifically with the Lord's Prayer, which was, which was just read. And so there's so much to cover today. So if you have your Bibles, you can jump right in. Your small group guide, jump right in. Uh, and let me see... We got that. Perfect. So Matthew chapter 6. This is the greatest prayer that has ever been taught to God's people in the greatest sermon ever given by the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth. And he says this, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask pray then like this. Now before we get into the Lord's Prayer, just a couple opening kind of remarks on how Jesus sets this up. Um, One, he immediately says, don't pray like the Gentiles. And sometimes that word Gentiles in the Bible is translated, um, don't pray like the pagans. Um, Gentiles is an ethnic term, meaning everyone who's not Jewish, but in cases like this, he's not referring to the ethnicity of the nations. It's more talking about the religious practices of the nations at that time. And so he goes, don't pray like all the pagans do, all the people who worship multiple gods, the polytheists, do not pray like them. Don't use empty phrases. The Greek word for empty phrases is unique. It kind of has like an, an onomatopoeia thing going on for you, like gr- grammar geeks and stuff like that. I had to pronounce, I had to practice pronouncing that word like 10 times, onomatopoeia. Did I get it right? Um, people are like, no. I heard three, there's three encouragers in the front row. Yeah, like, you know how when, like, if you have a a hard name to pronounce, like, someone clearly isn't saying it right, but if they're nice, they go, yeah, that's it, even though you just butchered it. It's, it's like, uh, I'm trying to think, like, like, in in Spanish, like, if something has a hard R, it's like, Ricardo, and it's like, Ricardo, good enough, yeah, that's how you say it. That's what someone just did to me in the front row about that word. Uh... But the point of it is this, the, the Gentiles, the, the, the pagans, um, believe that very long prayers, uh, prayers that went on and on, would somehow trigger something in the gods. Um, sometimes they would say certain phrases again and again, and sometimes they would actually use kind of um, syllables that actually weren't words, they were more like kind of magical words that they thought can manipulate or trigger something from the gods. And what Jesus' point is, 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 is incredibly important for our day. He's saying that prayer is not about you doing the right things to manipulate, trigger, or alter the will of the gods. He says, your father in heaven already knows what you ask of him. So then pray like this. When you go to prayer, your intent is not to manipulate the gods or God to align with your will. Prayer is a way in which your will begins to align with his. Pray then like this. In, in Luke's account, there's a, there's a different gospel, and if, when I say gospel account, I'm talking about the first 
um, four biographies about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all write biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. And in Luke's account, rather than ending this paragraph with pray like this, the Greek is a little different, and it's more like, whenever you pray, say this, or whenever you pray, recite this. Now, this is uh, important and foreign to us in kind of our church culture. Most people throughout church history, when they read Jesus saying, when you pray or whenever you pray, do this, they had an assumption that as a follower of, of Christ, you would have regular set hours for prayer and that whenever you went to pray in those regular set hours, you would open with the Lord's Prayer. So for instance, in Jews in Jesus' day, they prayed three, well, they prayed more than three times a day, but they had three times during the day in which they set apart 10 minutes for prayer. In the morning, kind of around lunchtime, and then the evening. And you would have official memorized prayers that you would say. Again, our culture, our Christian culture in the last kind of 50, 60, 70 years in American culture has reacted to any type of um, formality, any type of repetition. Um, we kind of sort of think that, well, that's not real and authentic to just say a memorized prayer over and over again. But you need to know that in Jesus' day, this is what everyone did. And most Christians throughout human history, I'm talking the majority of Christians, had set times in the day set apart for prayer. And they would obviously pray with their own words, but they also had memorized prayers. So in Jesus' day, when they heard Jesus say, when you pray or when you go to pray, say this or recite this, they, they kind of took it as, oh, in our morning, afternoon, and nighttime prayers, we should start off with the Lord's Prayer. This is so clear that there's a document from the first century world called the Didache, chapter 3, verse 8. It tells Christians, this is in the first century, so within the first hundred years of church history, the command kind of that's going around from this document called the Didache is that Christians would recite the Lord's Prayer, memorize, three times a day. Just kind of corresponding to that Jewish tradition. I say that because it would be a really, really good habit for all of us to commit the Lord's Prayer to memory in not only our mind but in our heart and recite it in a, in a habitual way throughout the day. Now, obviously, habits can, can turn into empty ritual, but it doesn't have to be that in and of itself. Pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. There's your application. Normally, good sermons save the application for the end. Throw it right at the beginning. Make a note. Set timers in your phone for the next couple weeks. Seriously, try this for the next couple weeks. Try starting your day, finding a day in the midpoint in the evening by just saying the Lord's Prayer. And I would encourage you to do it out loud, not just in your head. Do it out loud somewhere. If it's awkward, you can't do that at work because people think you belong to a cult because you're doing like these prayers middle of the day. You know, go in the bathroom. Just find a place that you could recite the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
What we're going to do is, like a puzzle, we're going to examine each individual puzzle piece. So I'm going to take each phrase of this, and we're going to take a zoomed-in look at the individual puzzle piece. But much like a puzzle, the point and intent is not to leave the, pu- the puzzle pieces scattered on the table. At the end, we want to put them together, take a step back, and look at the big picture. So first, each individual line, and then we're going to put it all together and go from there. First line. They, oh, I mean, this is, there's like, I cut like three hours of content. Right here, this is a, one day we'll do a sermon series on on the Lord's Prayer and we'll spend like eight weeks just in this. But today is the condensed summary. If if you were like me, this is the, in high school, this is the cliff note version. Some of you, again, made your way through not only high school, but through higher education by them cliff notes. Um, So this is the cliff note version of, of a lot of information. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. First, first note. Christian prayer in the New Testament is primarily to the Father in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, don't, don't mistake my words. I am not saying it's wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit or pray to Jesus, but a Trinitarian formula of prayer throughout the New Testament primarily again and again has people praying to the Father in the name of Jesus empowered by the Spirit. Now there's a reason for that, I think. God wants us to relate to him as children and he being our heavenly Father. Um, I can tell you time and time again, so many people that I've come into contact with, talked to, pastored, counseled with, they have a hard time relating to God primarily because they had a bad or dysfunctional relationship with their earthly father and they project their earthly father's kind of characteristics and persona upon their heavenly father and they always feel distant to this God. And what happens to you is that you kind of, you like praying to Jesus because Jesus seems nicer. He says, let the children come to me. But you, but you have a, a, a theology that is kind of like, Jesus is cool and he likes me, but man, the father he doesn't mess around. You saw what he did to Jesus on the cross, and, and you have that. It's, it's theology on an emotional level. Again, there's nothing wrong with directing your prayers to Jesus or the Holy Spirit, but primarily and foundationally, direct your prayers to the Father. And if you have a hard time addressing God as Father, I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, there's some type of emotional wound there disrupting how you relate to God. And it doesn't just affect your prayer life. It affects how you trust him, what you think of him. It affects how you evangelize. It'll affect everything. You need to work on talking to God as a good heavenly father. And I understand that's difficult. It's not just a magic switch that you can flip. But God has revealed himself to his people as a good and gracious heavenly father. Jesus tells us, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your your name. This word hallowed, agiadzo, it means to to make holy or to set apart. And this is something uh, else that's sort of foreign to us as modern Christians. But this this prayer is, is, is asking God to glorify his own name, to magnify himself, hallowed be your name. In ancient Near Eastern culture, someone's name was part and parcel. It was tied in with their being. So to insult someone's name is to insult the very person. So this prayer that Jesus is teaching us to pray says, God, hallowed be your name. Glorify your name. Glorify yourself. Do it for your namesake. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, 
you've read through it, you've been a Christian a long time, how many prayers in the Old Testament do you have a saint going before God saying, Lord, for your name's sake, deliver your people? Rarely, if ever, do you have someone saying, Lord, I love you, I know you love me so much. You love me so, so much, so deliver me out of your steadfast love for me. More often, you will see, Lord, you have steadfast love for me for your name's sake and for the sake of your glory, deliver your people. Hallowed be your name. Here's an interesting passage from Ezekiel that brings this to the forefront. Um, God is going to deliver his people, Israel, but this is what he wants the prophet to tell the people. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. You see how the the inner workings of that, the inner logic? Yes, of course, God loves his people. God loves you. But he is not going to deliver Israel in this case, first and foremost, because he loves them so much and he needs to protect them. He's going to show the world that he loves these people, not only for that, but so the world may see he is faithful to his promises and he will give justification for who he is and his characteristics. Uh, it's kind of a, a tragic and sad example of this recently I was reading. There's a, a Christian apologist. Some of you might have heard of him. His name's Nabil Qureshi. He was a Muslim and converted to Christianity and has spent years now kind of writing books and speaking on um, why he trusts in Jesus and not um, in the God of Islam. Um, he, he recent, he's a young guy. He's in his 40s, has young kids. Um, recently got diagnosed with stage 4 stomach cancer is given a um, 4% chance of living beyond a few years. 4% chance, stomach cancer, stage four. Um, and it's, it's super emotional. He puts, uh, every so often he'll, he'll post a little video online just thanking people for their prayers and encouraging people to keep praying for him. But he talks about how many of his Muslim friends, or not, they used to be his friends, or just um, people from around the world write to him and say, this is, look, look at what's happened to you. You, you. you have forsaken Allah and now he's cursed you with, with stomach cancer. You're going to die because of your abandonment of the one true God. Now, I'm sure he has great and gracious Muslim friends who are encouraging and, and alongside of him, but he's received hundreds of hundreds of emails that are just condemning him. You're cursed. This is what you get. And so on one of his, his kind of video blogs that he posted online, he says, I need God's people to pray that God would vindicate his name among my Muslim brethren. And basically he goes on to say is that this will give his enemies reasons to boast over the cross of Christ. They will use this as an example to put down the name of the Lord. Look what happens when you trust in Jesus. And so his prayer isn't, God be merciful to me because I'm so special in your eyes. His prayer is, Lord, glorify yourself. Hallowed be your name among the nations. Do not let them use my cancer as a reason to boast over the cross. You see how that, that, that works? It's subtle, but you'll see that theology time and time again in the New Testament. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is probably in the top three most influential uh, passages, verses in the Bible for, for me theologically. So much of what I believe about who we are as God's people, what should we be about as God's people, where the earth is right now and where the earth, the world is going into the future is based upon this statement. Jesus' prayer is that God's kingdom, his reality, his rule and reign would come to earth as it is in heaven. Now you need to understand this is running right alongside the hope of ancient Israel. The hope of ancient Israel was as they suffer, as the nations persecute and oppress them, that one day the good king, God himself, would come and fix this mess. What happened in kind of modern Christian theology, there's been a massive influence from Greek philosophy, and what we think the ultimate hope for the world is, is that this place is so bad, you just trust in Jesus, and if you were saved, God is going to, to, to take you from your body, and you will become a spirit, and you will go and live in heaven forever. There's some truth in there, but there's, there's also some subtle nuances that are incredibly misleading. Your ultimate hope as a Christian is not just about going to heaven. First off, it is about God renewing heaven and earth and bringing those together, reconciliation. The Bible ends with the coming down of the new Jerusalem, the heavens upon the earth, and God wiping away every tear, every pain, all the suffering in the world here in a reunited world. Now, the second part of that is really bad. So many Christians think that when you die, you'll go and be a spirit with God forever and ever and ever. The hope of ancient Israel and the hope if if you're a Christian is not being a spirit in heaven forever and ever. It's God taking you once you die, bringing your spirit into his presence. There you await the final judgment and then he brings about the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And this is important. The end goal for you is not disembodied spirit. The end goal is physical resurrection. That sounds foreign to so many Christians I talk to, but it's clear again and again in the New Testament. There will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, and God will judge humanity in the flesh. One story says that God created a world, sin came in, and it messed up the world so bad that God is basically going to help us escape this bad place, and there we will go and live as like spirits, or sometimes it's, you even think it's like angel, you're an angel in heaven with God forever and ever and ever. In other words, it's escapism. This place is so bad, God is going to help us escape as spirits, and we can go live in a spiritual reality called heaven. The Bible is saying that God has not given up on this place we call home. God has not given up on the world. The ultimate goal and hope of every Christian is that God would bring his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we could talk about that forever. But I'll just say this. As a child, um, kind of with the, the modern understanding of Christianity, I, 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 would, I, would be so ter- I was so terrified of heaven as a little kid. Anyone ever terrified of heaven? It was scary. It was like, I'm going to go and be a spirit like sitting on a cloud for all eternity. The only thing I knew about the world was, was physical. I mean, I, 
Think about the, the excitement of riding a bike fast or, or playing a sport. All of those are physical activities. And I'm just going, heaven is like this spiritual disembodied existence, and it was terrifying for me. Speaking of one of the bad things <laughs> about physical bodies is there's allergies. Um, <laughs> that was a random sneeze. All the things you know and love in this life are just a fallen version of the perfected version. God will raise his people up in the flesh. He will bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. His dwelling place will be with the dwelling place of man. And we will live in a beautiful, renewed world forever and ever in eternity with God. Those who reject this will be exiled out of that. They'll be kicked out of that. The Bible's term for that, the place of of death and punishment and justice is hell. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the hope of ancient Israel and the hope of God's people. I want to show you a prayer from the first century that people in Jesus' day would have known. See if it sounds familiar. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole household of Israel, speedily and at a near time. Sound a little familiar? This is Jesus' prayer that he teaches us is not fundamentally different than normal Jewish prayers in the first century. They had a hope that God would make his name great in the world. Why? Because God loves the peoples of the world. He wants to make his name known not just among Jews, but among all nations. Secondly, he created this world according to his will. It's a good world. Does the God you worship, the God revealed in Jesus, the God revealed in Scripture, just want to help people escape this place or find a way to save this place, renew it, restore it? What does Jesus say at the the end of the book of the Revelation? Behold, I make all things new. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days. Why is that so important? Because there's a a Jewish ache in the first century, an ache that we should have. They look not only at their lives but the rest of the world and they say, this place is messed up, it is broken, there is so much suffering and it leads to an ache. God, may your kingdom come in our lifetimes, can you look at how beautiful that prayer is? We should, if you have a child or a grandchild, this should be one of your prayers. When you put your hand on one of your babies, may His kingdom come in your lifetime. May He put an end to suffering. May you see the end of world hunger. May you see the end of the water crisis. May you see God destroy evil and bring about new creation. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days. Another layer of Jewish prayer that I want want to bring your attention to. Um, In Jesus' day and in uh, our day, pretty much every blessing or prayer or petition to God in Hebrew begins by saying, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melacha alam, and it means, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. This is incredibly important because every blessing, every prayer, begins with an understanding that God is king. He's king. This is really, really difficult for us. Said it again and again, but we need to pound it in our head. We are Americans, we don't like kings. This is our DNA, this is who we are. 
How is our nation founded? We don't like kings. We want democracy. We want a world where everyone has a voice. You need to understand that that may be a great thing on earth where there's corrupt leaders and corrupt dictators and even the best of people are bad at the end of the day. God's kingdom is not a democracy. He's a king. He sits on a throne. He says, jump, you say how high. So much of Christianity relates to God as if he's just your friend, he's a homeboy, he's your sidekick, he's your co-pilot. God is king. And every Jewish prayer begins with an understanding that you are but a servant in his world, his reality. Blessed are you, Lord God, king of the universe, of the cosmos, of all things. One of the, the, the biggest things neglected in current theology is the fact that God is king and he's bringing about his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. We need to rediscover that and the, the countless implications of that. So return to that. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next line, give us this day our daily bread. You'd be surprised how complicated this verse has become. Like if you, if you study up on this and read modern scholarship and commentaries, there's like a thousand different understandings of this. And I'm just going, there is no way anyone listening to Jesus 2,000 years ago living in northern Galilee would take this any other way except daily bread. God, give, give us enough for today. That's powerful, though. Do you, do you feel that? In, in, in a world where, where people don't have enough to eat, when Jesus says, said this, they, they didn't have savings account piled up with money. He was talking to poor people. God, give us just enough for today. I rarely pray. Most of the time I pray for far more than daily bread, Right? When Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, trust me. Trust me. I'll give you enough for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. It has its own problems. We'll get there in time. One of the, the easiest ways you can, you can check if you're actually living that principle out is just honestly, how, how generous of a person are you? Do you cling to your material resources, your money and what you have? Or you say, hey, I worship the king of the universe. He has blessed me immensely. I can be a generous person because he's taking care of my biggest problems. Easiest way to check yourself. How are you spending your money? Do you trust God? Or do you accumulate and say, ultimately, I don't trust you to provide today, so I'm going to hold on. Are you a generous person? Are you giving? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, in, in Jewish thought, oftentimes sin was called debt. It was a metaphor that was used. So it's saying, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Uh, Jesus has talked about this on the Sermon on the Mount a lot already, so I'm not going to spend much time on here because we spent about two weeks talking about forgiveness. 
but just succinctly this, is God, if you're a Christian, God has forgiven you, and his expectation is that, not you, is that as you receive forgiveness, you wouldn't kind of hoard that to yourself like a reservoir, claiming all this forgiveness for yourself, but that you, like a stream, would let that flow out for others' benefits. Forgiven people forgive. If God has forgiven you of much, you should extend his grace and forgiveness into the world. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Anyone ever wonder? There's all kinds of like controversy because God says in, in James chapter one um, that He will never tempt you. God doesn't test. God doesn't tempt anybody. And then it's like, well, then why should I pray and lead us not into temptation if you're never going to do that? Seems like I should be spending my time praying for other things. Um, probably what Jesus is talking about is you're asking God to protect you from being put in situations where temptations may arise. Um, it's like this, like if you go on, anyone ever do a paleo diet? Paleo, you know what that is? It's like where you cut off everything that's good in God's, God's world. Um, so you're like not gonna eat any carbs or any, 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 any sugars, anything like that. And what you, it's, it's like this, say you've just made a paleo commitment for like six months. I'm gonna do paleo for six months. And then, you go out and you drive and you say, Lord, please, as I drive by the donut shop, do not allow me to smell the goodness coming forth unto my nostrils. Just help me give up. You're asking to be protected from a situation in which you know you will be weak. And by the way, um, that's just a good principle to live by. Most, many, especially young people, um, they think that like if they mature in faith and are strong with Christ, then they could be in a situation um, where there's temptation and not succumb to it. Don't do that. Wisdom says, how many times in my life have I succumbed to t- temptation? Have I, how about I try not to put myself in a situation where my weakness will take advantage of the, the situation? It's just practical wisdom. Lead us not into temptation. And then this awesome part, but delivers from evil. It's crazy right now because uh, I, heard, I, he- I hear there's like a, a, a national holiday tomorrow now. Um, they, it's, a, it's a big deal. You get, I, I, someone told me there's no school tomorrow? Is that a true story? Because of Halloween? What's the reasoning? Staff, de- pr- pr- um, staff development. They need to put staff development on Tuesday. I had to write a letter. Who's in, who's in charge of making those decisions? Say, you want to help those teachers develop, give them grace, not let them kids come to school on Tuesday. Oh, I mean, they had the equivalent to kid crack for like eight hours. They're, you know, they're sneaking in sugar all night. Okay, so here's the point. Uh, Our culture, as secularism has spread, has tried to kind of banish the concept of evil. We've, we've tried to kind of hide it in the closet. We've tried to bury evil in, in a dig hole and put dirt over it. And, and there's a reason for that, is the categories of evil and supernatural evil can't exist in a completely secular worldview. You can have some types of evils, but the, the evil that we see in the world, the evil that the Bible talks about, those categories only exist if you have a supernatural evil. Um, and so what we try to do as a culture is we, we try to label everything as, as it's, a, it's a dysfunction, it's, it's, a, it's a sickness, it's something other than, than evil. 
and, and don't, don't twist my words. There are things that, that are wrong, that are sicknesses and diseases and dysfunction. Yes, but what the Bible says is that behind even moral wrongs, human wrongs, behind diseases and dysfunctions, there's these shadowy figures, supernatural evil forces at play. There's things behind the curtain that are pulling strings. And our culture tries to kind of do away with that. And around Halloween, it's so funny because every year, it's like it, it, it seeps up and a secular culture intuitively, almost kind of embedded into our thoughts is this idea that there, there's real type of evil out there. So what happens at Halloween? Every year, there's gonna be a movie about demonic possession and exorcism. It's like, if you're gonna release an exorcist movie, don't do it at Easter. No one's gonna go see it. If you do it at Halloween, everyone's talking about this stuff. And there's this sort of kind of like creepy feeling that there is something behind the curtain. I, I, have, I have atheist friends who will still use that language like, yeah, there's, there's something like creepily evil about that. Go, you can't talk like that. We're all product of random chance. No creepy evil behind that curtain. No intrinsically, innately evil substance in the world. Doesn't work that way. But around this time, it bubbles to the sur surface. That's why um, it's actually a great time to talk about those things. Christians shouldn't, um, when, when culture is talking about evil, demons, ghosts, the devil, and like, in addition to exorcist movies, there's always one about the Antichrist, usually. Don't escape from those opportunities. For years, Christians would like run and hide from those conversations. You're filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God. Use those opportunities to have valuable conversations with your friends and coworkers. You don't have to hide from this stuff. Deliver us from evil. This prayer anticipates the day that God will eliminate all evil. Human evil, the evil that's in the world, and the supernatural evil that's behind the curtain. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, um, the Lord's prayer is about God's kingdom, his reality, his blessing, working in his people's life to interact with the world we live in. Um, and there's a thousand different things we could talk about, about how that works for mission, how it, what it means for the poor, what it means for orphans, what it means for, for war, all of these things. I mean, these are difficult conversations that Christians need to be thinking through and thinking with a Christ-like and kingdom lens through. But I just wanted to, to point out before, before um, just we go any further, I, I heard there's, there's like a, a big election going on soon. It's a big deal. Here, a lot, a lot of people are talking about it. Saw one or two people post on Facebook about it recently, too. A couple people. So I could not um, give a sermon on God's coming kingdom and living kingdom principles in the world without touching on it. Now, this is always dangerous territories. Lucky, I'm, I'm not, it's not going to be too controversial or anything. Um, but there's always going to be people who said, you talked too, talk too much about politics, that's not your place. And then there's going to be someone who's like super angry because it's like, you don't talk enough, you're a coward and stuff like this. So uh, it's, both are true. Uh, just whatever you want, I'll say here on out, um, 
whatever accusations you have, whatever, you, it's, it's, it's all true. Okay, so uh, I just want to give you four kind of kingdom sort of principles as we head into the next two weeks. Um, which is funny, because you know how like every year everyone says like, this is the biggest election of our time. And it's like, I've never seen the mudslinging get so bad. No, this one actually might be true. Like, all, you know what I'm talking about? Some of, you, some of you who are older, for like 50 years, every election has been the most important election for you, and the mudslinging is worse than ever before, and I'm always like, yeah, okay. And then this one, I'm like, wow. Wow, this is, this is, pretty, this is pretty crazy. So here's just four quick things. Nothing t- too big. shouldn't shock anybody, but I want to remind you, because it seems that uh, we forget these things. One, uh, please don't, don't fear. Do not fear. So many uh, Christians are... are they, they, they have it in their mind that if their candidate doesn't win, that the world is going to fall apart, the church is going to be attacked like never before, and we're going to be, be destroyed. Listen, do you know who your king is? Seriously, do you know who your king is? And do you know church history? First off, God is sovereign, and two, when Christianity is under pressure, that is not when the church dies. When Christianity is under pressure, that's when we do best. God's church does best with pressure applied. It is in times of excess and luxury and comfort that God's people forget their Lord God. So don't, 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 don't fear. Yes, things matter. Yes, things could get worse. But God's kingdom marches on. Kingdoms of this world rise and fall. Kings, presidents, they come and go. But his kingdom is being established on earth as it is in heaven. And it's being established with everlasting purposes. In good times and in bad times. So, so don't react to the world with fear. This is a command in scripture. Do not fear. There's times in the Bibles where God tells a prophet, yeah, this nation's gonna come in and they're gonna kill everybody. Do not fear. Do not fear. It's a command. Second, uh, know the issues. Just please, just, um, and don't, this is, <laughs> this is important to me. Um, don't just read like one website or one article or hear from one candidate, one person's opinion. Because like half the stuff that's on the internet is made up anyway. There's fact-checking sites that are made up. I'm going to start a fact-checking site. It's going to reroute everyone to svccchurch.com. Okay, boom, boom, boom. Sign up for a small group. So this, this, is, this is an important, this is an important, this is a big election. Uh, primarily, in my opinion, it's the, it's the, uh, the reason why it is the most important election in my lifetime is because of the Supreme Court issue. Um, right now we have, um, there's a death of one Supreme Court justice, so right now th- th- there's kind of like this equal balance of power. There's four liberal judges, four conservative judges, and um, I forget the average age of when a Supreme Court justice retires. I think it's 72, but the average age of acting Supreme Court justices right now is like 76. Those numbers aren't exact, but basically whoever is in for the next four years has... The, the strong possibility of forever changing the Supreme Court. It's a big deal. The people who interpret our laws, it's a big deal. By the way, John Calvin said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them evil judges. Let that sink in. So just know, know the issues. Do, do your research. Um, don't, don't just let other people think for you. Um, and oh, hold on. That's a good one. I'm gonna, I gotta build up to that one. Hold on. I got one more thing to say on this. Uh, and, and even though God's kingdom is, is a theocracy where he's king, it's a monarchy, 
know that it's a blessing to live in a democracy where, where your voice, even if it's small, matters. Men and women bled to give you that vote. Use it wisely. It, ma- it matters. It really does. Third, uh, yeah, the lesser of two evils. Uh, everyone's saying, like, lesser of two evils, lesser of two... There's the, if, well, some of you, you're, awesome, you're like... <laughs> You're a rebel, so you're like, you're already, I will never vote for the, I, you're like anti-institution. That's sort of how I am, just my gut nature always wants to like stick it to the institution. I hate the man and all he is type thing. So you're going to vote third party and that's, that's great, wonderful, God bless you. But the majority of Americans, the majority, statistically we know this, will vote Republican or Democrat. They'll, they'll vote the party line. Um, and so everyone's argument, not everyone's, but you know, you're hearing this over and over again. We got to vote the lesser of two evils, like that's a big deal. You're always voting the lesser of two evils. If you have a kingdom perspective, you are always voting for the lesser of two evils. If King David was running for office, you'd be, you'd be voting for the lesser of two evils. The reason why I bring this out, because just in my, my lifetime, with the several elections that I observed, what happens to the Christian church is we get a candidate that, that majority of Christians will kind of rally around and even though we don't say it like this, we treat that person like they're the Messiah and we hate the other, the other guy and whenever our guy or girl makes a mistake, we instantly try to, to justify it and back it up. You can be critical of the person you're voting for. You can be extremely critical of the vo- person you're voting for because you're always voting for the lesser of two evils. Until God comes, you always have to choose between fallen leaders and guess what? Even the best people in the world when given power usually have power corrupt. It's very rare that this doesn't happen. So be wise. Be wise. Are you voting for someone who is going to help create a culture that looks more like the kingdom of God? Do they care about the issues that the Bible cares about? They care about the poor, the needy. Do they care about the unborn? Do they care about... Even if they're not a Christian, say they're an atheist, do, are they respecting people of faith? Or do they think that's something old archaic that just needs to be swept under the rug like evil? Think about these things. Think critically. No, yes, you're voting for fallen people. No one's, don't ever treat anyone as a Messiah. I've seen Republicans and Democrats do that almost every year for the last several, well, except for uh, Mitt Romney. No, no one... I didn't see too many people, at least in California, that were voting for Mitt Romney, think, like, like cry when he walks by. But every other case, like when your candidate walks by at a rally, you see people just going, oh my God. Even poor Mitt Romney, man. Even his greatest fans were like. <laughs> no, he didn't have too much excitement. Uh, this is most important. The most politically charged thing you can do is, is advance God's kingdom on earth and heaven. What I mean by that is the, the greatest impact you can have is by sharing the gospel with your friends, family, and coworkers and discipling people. This is the greatest thing you can do. I'm gonna speak critically about Christian culture for a second and you can forgive me if you're like, hey, you weren't there for this. You don't know, you were too little. Look, in, in, in the 80s and 90s, Christian culture thought that they could, as a whole, legislate morality and change the culture through politics. And politics is a good endeavor. Christians should care about these issues. But as a whole, in the 80s and 90s, the Christian church simultaneously forgot about the gospel and discipleship. 
and we raised, trust me, I was a youth pastor, we raised a whole generation up that just told them, hey, trust in Jesus, you go to heaven when you die, and don't worry about these issues, just go along, you're saved. We didn't disciple people. We have a, a, a world full of young people that weren't discipled by us, but guess what? They were discipled by other people. And now they're the biggest voting block in the country. The greatest thing you can do, the most politically charged thing you could do to advance God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is preach the gospel and disciple. And when you do that, guess what? When healthy, well-rounded disciples usually vote wisely. Politics, we need to be involved. We need more people involved. We need more Christian lawmakers, people who know these issues. But at the end of the day, when a culture is standing firm upon the gospel and discipleship, culture is changed from the inside out, not from an authority coming here and pushing it down on people. It's very important. All right, last word. And then as Eric says, I'm just going to run out of here. I got a car waiting so no one could tell me stuff. This, this is the important thing about um, the Lord's Prayer. This is putting all the puzzle pieces back together. When you say that prayer, there is an ache in every line. There should be an ache in every line. God's people long for righteousness and justice in the land. We long for world hunger to be eliminated. We long for every child to have access to clean drinking water. We long for these things, and there's an ache for it. Our Father in heaven, Lord, make your name known among the nations. I'm, I'm tired of people disrespecting your name, Jesus. They laugh at you. They mock at you. It's like a crucifixion every single day. Lord, make your name known among the nations. Do you feel the ache and weight of that prayer request? Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you feel that ache? God, every day I turn on the news and I see some horrible tragedy. Bombs going off and kids running around crying in blood. They've lost mother and father. They will grow up without a mommy and daddy. Lord, your kingdom come, please, in this. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. We're, we're blessed enough that most of us will never have to worry about that. But countless people have that ache, not only spiritually but physically. God, give, help me provide for my family. I want to provide food and water. Every inch of the Lord's prayer is an ache. It is a longing for God to finally come as king and bring his kingdom and fix this place we call home. Have you lost that ache? These last three weeks for me, I've been praying again and again, God, help me not to grow numb to the evil of the world because I'm losing the ache. What I mean by that is there's points in my life where I wake up every day and I'm going, God, how can I how can I help those without food? How can I help the people who, who are dying without knowing you, Jesus? And, and this is just honest, honest reflection, and I know you can relate to it, and I'm a pastor, you have different jobs, vocations, but the same applies. There's some days it's like, I have a meeting at 10 a.m., what, what things in this church need work on? Okay, I need, I need to check this off the list, this off the list, and you get, you get tied up doing those types of things. Have you lost your ache? Do you still long for God's kingdom? When you pray the Lord's Prayer, it's a recognition that something's not right. 
pray that God would never let you grow numb to the hurt, pain, and suffering in this world. There are millions of people without food, millions of people without water, millions of women in culture who are treated worse than animals. There are millions of babies being slaughtered without a chance for life. There are millions of people in abusive, horrible situations. There are millions of examples and instances of injustice, both on the small level and on an institutional level. God's people pray the Lord's Prayer and say, God, for your name's sake, fix this mess. Save us, O Lord. My challenge for you today is to ask God, give me the ache if I've lost it. One of the simple practical things you could do is commit to saying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Reminding yourself of that. I'm going to pray. We can take the, the offering for today where we give of our abundance to his kingdom, his advancement. Um, and then Sam's going to come up and talk about uh, something we, we've introduced a while ago called Foster the Bay. One of the, the best ways that you could advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and provide for those who have very little. Let me pray and we'll move forward with service. Father God, uh, bless every single person in this room. Convict our hearts. Help us to be generous people. I want to be a church that can, can, in good conscience, say, we trust you. You are a generous God. We give out of the abundance. So convict our hearts. Help us to be generous people. Give us the ache. There's a lot of things wrong. Help us to find our way with being uh, a part in the solution and not a part of the problem. And, and give us grace in the next couple weeks as a church and as a country. Be merciful to us. We don't deserve it. Be gracious with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.